It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing, you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. They even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit. It's time to get your problem solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get $15 off your order with code PODCAST15. Summer is here. Pack your bag with sunscreen, your emotional sport water bottle, and that steamy bee treat. But wait, don't stop there. This year, there's a new kind of essential that's right at your fingertips. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods, goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut. To explore the bounds of your pleasure, new content is released every week. So in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. Dipsy offers a modern approach to romance through high quality and captivating audio fiction. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to D-I-P-S-E-A stories.com slash pantsuit. Dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. You are never going to look at a prosecutor's record, just like a lot of things in life. You're never going to look at a spreadsheet of salaries that people make in a company and go, oh, I agree with every single bit of this. You never (laughs) are. There are too many complex trade-offs, too many factors, too many things that you don't know and that they didn't know and that no one could have known. This is a very pragmatic woman who was tough on a bunch of issues that she might handle differently today. Don't we want people to learn and grow? I do. (laughs) This is Sarah and Beth. You're listening to Pantsuit Politics, the home of grace-filled political conversations. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Pantsuit Politics. We are so excited to be here today sharing five things you need to know about Kamala Harris, Joe Biden's new vice presidential running mate. We are so excited. Now, the fifth thing is 
spoiler alert, the fifth thing's going to be just what we think about Kovalev. <laughs> We're combining our usual uh, format because we got a lot of stuff going on next week. We got the centennial of suffrage. We got the Democratic National Convention. So we're having to condense our usual run of things. And we're going to share some facts about her and then share what we think about this pick. Also, I think everybody would be mad if we didn't say what we thought about it today. So we will do that. That is our fifth thing. We just want to remind you that if keeping up with the news is bogging you down right now, you can spend five-ish minutes, often less than that with Sarah on Instagram, Monday through Thursday morning, take a little news quiz with our kiddos on Friday, and know that you have all the information that you need to stay current with what's happening without the yuck factor. Sarah is delightful. Well, and listen. I was about to say nice things about you. <laughs> go, no, go ahead. Go Sarah ahead. is delightful in her delivery. She gives you a good morning as though she is your mom waking you up. And <laughs> people love it. I know you will, too. So Pantsuit Politics on Instagram is where you can find that. Because this is totally within our control. Some days, like today, the day we're recording on Thursday, I said, you know what, y'all? There is not that much new to talk about. So we're not going to do this. We're not going to show up just because we show up and talk about things we talked about yesterday. So sometimes you just even get a reprieve from the news when I'm like, you know what? We're not going to torture ourselves searching for bad things to talk about. Let's just we'll just keep thinking about Kamala and take a break for today. That's right. Live your lives. That's right. Okay, five things. Let's talk about Kamala because I'm so excited to talk about Kamala. The first thing we want to share with you is that Kamala Harris was particularly influenced by her mother and has this amazing multicultural background that I think is going to be such an asset to her in this level of leadership position. Yes. She was born in Oakland, California. Her mother, Shamala Gopalan, was an endocrinologist who immigrated to the U.S. from India at the age of 19. Um, amazingly, this trip to California was her first time out of India, and she was avoiding an arranged marriage at a time when women did not do things like that. She went on to become a famous breast cancer researcher. Kamala's father is an economist from British Jamaica who is now retired from Stanford University Economics Department. And the name Kamala means lotus, and it's another name for the goddess Lakshmi. And it's very important, and it was very important to her mother that both her and her sister Maya have Indian names that were a nod to their Indian heritage. So if you heard her announcement speech, Kamala Harris explained this, but her parents met through the civil rights movement in Oakland. Her mother, when she came over from India, immediately found herself connected to the black community in Oakland, and they met during the civil rights struggle. They divorced when she was young. Kamala said that the only thing she heard her parents fight over in the divorce was who would get their books. Her <laughs> father took losing custody hard. He has said that that loss reflected California's false assumption that fathers cannot handle parenting. But she really has not been close to her father since then. Her mother was the primary person in her life. Uh, so she was raised in Berkeley by her mother. Now, that's a little misleading because they moved around a lot, as we'll talk about in a second. But principally, they are Californians. She was raised by her mother, along with her sister, Maya, who went on to be a civil rights attorney and advisor to Hillary Clinton. Shamala, her mother, was also a civil rights activist. And every two years, she took her daughters to India. I just think, Sarah, it's such a big deal to have someone at this level of U.S. politics mm -hmm. who has spent this much time in India, who occasionally went to Jamaica with her dad 
dad, who lived in Canada for five years when her mother took a teaching job at McGill University in Montreal. She speaks some French. You know, she's an immigrant. She has struggled to have like a quick biography for people because there's so much complexity here. And I love it when she's asked about whether she's more influenced by her Black identity or her Indian identity. She says, I don't feel the need to elevate one over the other. I am both things. I am a lot of things. And I love that about her. Well, and I was really touched by the way she talked about her mother's dedication to both identities when she was raising Kamala and Maya that, you know, she's quoted as saying she had two black babies and she raised them to be two black women. You know, despite the fact that there was this divorce and the father was not as active in their lives, I think that she, Shamala, their mother, really, you know, leaned into letting them embrace both sides of their identity and the multicultural resources of where they were living at the time. You know, Kamala says, like, my mother was Hindu. I know about Hindu. She took them to a Baptist church when they were little girls. Like, I just I love that. I love that she knew that this was really important. I mean, her mother, who sadly passed away from pancreatic cancer in 2009, was such an influence and sounds like such a powerhouse. And I think learning about her and seeing her influence on Kamala is really such an insight into Kamala herself. And I think it's powerful to hear about her mother's connections. So her mother was very close to Mary Lewis, who helped found the field of Black studies. Her family was very close to a woman named Regina Shelton, who lived downstairs in their apartment building. Miss Shelton was from Louisiana and Christian. And there are fun anecdotes about Miss Shelton taking her to church and like passing her a hard candy, you know, down the aisle. (laughs) And when she was sworn in as California's attorney general and as a U.S. senator, she used Mrs. Shelton's. Bible for her swearing in. And I think this this thread of activism in her own mother's life in the community, it really runs deep. You know, her grandmother, Raham Gopalan, was an outspoken community organizer who educated women in rural India about contraception. I read this really <laughs> great story about how her mother would like drive through communities and like yell out the window about you should use birth control. Her grandfather was an accomplished Indian diplomat basically like the Secretary of State who worked to resettle refugees from East Pakistan, now Bangladesh and India. Kamala has called her grandfather one of her favorite people in the world, and she was very close to him and spent a lot of time with him on those visits to India. And she has said, again, just reinforcing this theme of the importance of her mother's influence, her mother has told her, you may be the first to do many things. Make sure you're not the last. And that quote really struck me and felt congruent with me to the friendships that you can see that she has in the United States Senate. I am always Mm -hmm. taken by the warmth between her and Senator Cory Booker, who's another one of my favorites in kind of the field of Democratic leaders. But you sense that she has genuine relationships with people and has kind of carried forward that sense of "I, I don't wield power over other people. I wield it with them. Well, and that's a good segue to our second point, which is this is not the first time she's made history. And I think her approach to these milestone achievements is really important. So she was the first woman appointed district attorney of San Francisco. She was the first female and first non-white lawyer elected to the Office of Attorney General in California and only the second black woman after Carol Mosley Braun ever elected to the United States Senate. And so now at 55, she is the first Indian American woman, the first Asian American woman, the first black woman on a major party presidential ticket. But when you hear her talk about it, 
you know, she always says, my mother said the goal was to do, not be seen. And so she, I think she really carries this interesting balance between like wanting to break those barriers, but not wanting to just break those barriers, but to be seen as somebody who affects change and who, again, works on a team and pulls other people up behind her. I read her response to a reporter who was doing a profile of her in The New Yorker, I think. And the reporter asked, this was in the midst of the primary. The reporter asked, like, do you think you're held to a different standard than the men in the field? And she said, I just don't even pay attention to that anymore. I probably should. But it's such a part of my existence to always be running as the outsider, as the person. Is she ready for this? Is are the is the public ready for this? Mm-hmm. No one's ever ready for it. It's just part of the deal for me. And I think that's... That's a really important perspective that has not been represented enough anywhere. So the third thing we want to share with you is, as you probably know, Senator Harris uh, has spent most of her career as a prosecutor. She has a political science degree, an economics degree from Howard University. She got her law degree at the University of California, Hastings College of Law in San Francisco. And a fun fact is that she failed the bar exam the first time she took it. Listen, as someone who's failed the bar exam, it doesn't feel fun at the time. (laughs) Uh, She says that she recently consoled a young law school graduate who didn't pass. And she said, I told her it's not a measure of your capacity. But I love that so much. And she talks also about like as part of her education, like what a dream come true it was to attend Howard University and what a really essential part of her experience in forming her identity of attending Howard and being a part of the AKAs. And I mean, they were huge, like in her campaign in South Carolina. And I think like showing her that side of her identity and that how important that was to her to also just really far away from where she grew up for what it's worth. I think that really built her. And she says, like, I wanted to be a lawyer from when I was little like those were who the people I looked up to that's what I wanted to do you know in this activist background that debates were constant and she really wanted to be on the side of people like Thurgood Marshall and people out there using the law to affect change well and I call it a fun fact for that very reason because you have to have such tenacity to take the bar exam again like that is a really tough experience for people it, I also just think bar exams are crap. Like, I think the bar exam is a tool of the patriarchy. Mm-hmm. But anyway, I just think it speaks to, like, her tenacity. And for her now to so clearly say to people, you're going to be an amazing lawyer no matter what the bar exam tells you, because she is one. And she's such a good example of that, that it really doesn't measure capacity. The bar exam's more about endurance than anything else. Summer is here. Pack your bag with sunscreen your emotional support water bottle, and that steamy bee treat. But wait, don't stop there. This year, there's a new kind of essential that's right at your fingertips. Dipsy is an app full of hundreds of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods, goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut. To explore the bounds of your pleasure, new content is released every week. So in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. Dipsy offers a modern approach to romance through high quality and captivating audio fiction. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. This 
This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. This year is going by so quickly, and I had a little bit of a moment of panic about it this week. I thought to myself, I'm losing track of time. It's going so fast. It's going to be December before I know it. My kids are growing up, and I just kind of was spinning out. And I stopped, and I closed my eyes, and I pictured my last therapist, who I haven't seen since the end of 2020. But I remember the way he talked me through these issues, and I sort of channeled his energy I put my feet on the ground and thought, this is just how time feels now. And there's nothing wrong with that or right about it. It just is. But those skills that I learned in therapy are so important to helping me take a second to celebrate what's going right and decide what I want to adjust for the rest of the year. If you're thinking of starting therapy, which I cannot recommend enough, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Take a moment. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit. The second most stressful thing after planning a trip is packing for it. This is true. This is a true story. I have just told you the clothes I have don't fit. They don't go together the way I want them to or I'm missing some essential piece. And then I discovered Quince. It's my go-to for high quality vacation essentials. Like this premium European linen dress that's going to get us all through the heat wherever we're traveling. Blouses and shorts from $30, washable silk tops, premium luggage options, and so much more. All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than their similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to all of us. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes. I got big plans for my Quince chiffon pleated skirt in Japan. They like a loose, flowy look over there to battle the heat. I will be adopting that strategy with that skirt. Pack your bags with high quality essentials from Quince. Go to quince.com slash pantsuit for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash pantsuit to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince.com slash pantsuit. So her first job was as a deputy district attorney in Alameda County, California. During her time as a deputy and then assistant district attorney, she counted the powerful longtime state assembly speaker Willie Brown among her mentors. And this comes up a lot in her biography. Brown and Harris dated for years before. And when she ran for district attorney, people accused her of being sort of a part of the machine and taking advantage of her relationship with him. I think this pops up a lot. I think it's sexist crap. It's so gross. But it does bear mentioning. And, you know, she was always seen as a very capable prosecutor. And she did rise up the ranks. But she also spent quite a bit of time in these different positions. If you're going to accuse her of just trying to get ahead politically, she sure as heck took her sweet time. I'll tell you that much. Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, also had this kind of relationship with Willie Brown. They didn't date, but he was a a mentor to Newsom (laughs) as well. And I read an article that said that Harris and Newsom were kind of like twins growing up together in the political scene that is California. Mm. And there was this one moment when he was the lieutenant governor and she was the attorney general. And so running for governor was the next logical step for both of them. And it really kind of divided their social circles, like which one of them people thought should actually go for it. 
And it just happened that Barbara Boxer announced her retirement. And so Kamala ran for Senate and Gavin ran for governor and it worked out. And he has said he's so glad that they didn't have to run against each other. And when she was asked about it, she laughed as she does. I think she's so filled with joy. I love that about her. But she laughed and said, well, I would have won. <laughs> you know. Um, so they have a, but they well, have a really good relationship. And, and what I, I wanted to mention that because Newsom has said that it is really unfair the way people talk about her relationship with Willie Brown, because he has that relationship, too, and he does not get attacked for it mm-hmm. and have that kind of albatross trust the way she does. Well, so she serves in the district attorney's office. She then runs against an incumbent for the district attorney position and at 39 becomes the first woman to hold that job. And I really think that this moment in her career is important for a lot of reasons. So as you can imagine, in a place like San Francisco, the district attorney's office is not particularly popular, right? Like it's a position of power, no doubt. But this is a liberal haven where people push and have been pushing back against sort of the law enforcement community for a long time, right? It's sort of the values of the community. And this was often a place where sort of careers went to die. There was a lot of corruption in the district attorney's office, or it would just, you would kind of You would end your career there, not begin it. And I think she came in. There's this great story about how she came in and painted the walls like it was this very institutional place like people would they were underfunded and really neglected. And there was just terrible morale among the staff at the district attorney's office because of the incumbent's behavior, but also just because it was not a top priority of the government or that really the community. And she came in and sort of has this reputation for like changing the physical look of the place because she thinks it's so important. There's another great story about how she had the room where she interviewed rape victims, painted and had art hung up because she felt like I'm bringing women at the worst moment of their life into this room and it, and it looks wretched. And it might not be a big thing that we can do, but it will have impact. And she did that at the district attorney's office too, like sort of turn the morale by changing the physical look of the building and the rooms and, you know, getting these people like copiers and just the most basic needs you have as an attorney. And I just think like like, I love that. I love seeing not only that she came into this place that had ended other careers or was sort of an albatross, and I, you can see her sort of forming that very pragmatic approach. Because if you're a prosecutor in San Francisco, there's some inherent tension there, right? And being able to navigate that successfully, which by all accounts she did, is huge. She's also a black woman and a prosecutor, and that's a combination a lot Mm -hmm. of people don't know how to react to. And I find the coverage of her time as a prosecutor enormously frustrating and disingenuous. If you think about how rapidly public sentiment has changed about criminal justice, the tagging her with issues where she was extremely progressive at the time, but looking at that Mm -hmm. record through a 2020 lens, it's just so unfair. And it ignores not only the big things that she did, and we'll talk about an example of this in a second with the death penalty, which is huge. It also is dismissive of the thousands of tiny decisions that a prosecutor makes every week, not even tiny, very consequential for people's lives, but the thousands of decisions that don't make the newspaper a week that a prosecutor makes and the inherent judgments that a prosecutor has to go through and the way a prosecutor looks at the humanity of the defendant before them. I just think if you're a person out there who thinks of yourself as like, 
wildly progressive about criminal justice reform, it is so willfully ignorant to not recognize that having a black woman as the district attorney matters. And it matters in so many ways that don't make your spreadsheet checklist of, of what the policies ought to be. But you know that hundreds of lives were changed for the good because of the work that she did and the lens of perspective that she brought to that work. So I do love this story, particularly about her opposition to the death penalty, which not surprisingly put her at odds with law enforcement. So Emily Bazelon shared this story in her 2016 profile of Kamala for The New York Times Magazine. She said in April 2004, four months after she took office in San Francisco, a 29-year-old police officer, Isaac Espinoza, was shot and killed on patrol. The city's police union urged Harris to seek the death penalty for the suspect. Three days after Espinoza's death, Harris announced that she would not. More than 2,000 uniformed police officers packed St. Mary's Cathedral for the funeral. With Harris in the front row, Senator Dianne Feinstein, one of the state's most powerful Democrats, took the pulpit and called for the death penalty. Waves of cops rose to their feet and applauded. Shamala sent white roses to her daughter's office with a card that read, Courage. Harris held firm and Espinoza's killer received a sentence of life in prison. Can you even imagine? This hurt my feelings for her, honestly. The Diane Feinstein thing just hurt I my feelings. I agree. But, you know, it's an incredibly principled stand that, again, was exceptionally progressive at the time and still is in a lot of communities across this country. Mm-hmm. So I just get very defensive on her behalf about the questioning. You are never going to look at a prosecutor's record, just like a lot of things in life. You're never going to look at a spreadsheet of salaries that people make in a company and go, oh, I agree with every single bit of this. You never are. <laughs> there are too many complex complex trade-offs, too many factors, too many things that you don't know and that they didn't know and that no one could have known in certain circumstances. I'm not saying she was perfect and that and that her record is entirely unblemished, but I think trying to paint her as too tough on crime is ridiculous. And I think trying to paint her as like a wildly out of step with the American public progressive on crime is ridiculous. This is a very pragmatic woman who was tough on a bunch of issues that she might handle differently today. Don't we want people to learn and grow? I do. (laughs) You know, she might handle some of those issues differently today. But I just think the body of her work speaks for itself in a way that that is pretty aligned with what we would hope for people in those positions. What I really like about this, too, is that, you know, she took this hit. The police union really, from all accounts, never forgave her. But then when she ran for AG and then for Senate, like she didn't just say they're done with me. Like she kept at it. Like she kept at those relationships and by all accounts really transformed some of them. Like I think that's what's amazing. Instead of just being like, well, they're going to hate me forever. Like, no, I'm going to I'm not going to give up because a relationship between the AG and the police unions is important and a relationship between the police unions and a senator is important. And so we're going to keep at this, guys, even though I know you're really mad at me about this, like just to keep showing up in those rooms and keep going at it when like they're not filled and people aren't praising you, like showing up in a room where you know people are pissed at you is not easy, especially as an elected official or as a candidate. And so I just really respect that she kept at it, even though she was at odds with them often. So the showing up is a great segue to the fourth thing that we want to share about her, which is that she has won a lot. 
She mm-hmm. has won a mm-hmm. whole lot. She worked on Jesse Jackson's presidential campaign in the 80s, and she knocked on doors in Iowa for the Obama campaign. When she entered statewide politics in 2010, she became the attorney general of California. And she ran a giant law enforcement apparatus. And there, th- this is the time when that record, especially people like to criticize. But she had a staff of 5,000 people in a state with the country's second largest non-federal prison system with about 135. 5,000 inmates and a death row population of almost 750. And I say to you again, think about the way we judge attorneys general. We want them to have successful records of prosecution as a public, right? If the state attorneys are losing lots of cases, the public thinks that's a problem. And we also... I think do not want a giant prison population anywhere. At least I don't here in 2020. So yeah, it's a mixed bag. But I thought this quote really captured her. This again is about Willie Brown. A Republican told Dana Goodyear, who was writing about her, to the extent that she learned from Willie, it was a masterclass in campaigning in left-wing poetry, but governing with pragmatic centrism. I just think it's a good reminder too. Like when you, it's easy to say senator and AG and sort of compare them or think in your mind of your own senators or your own AGs. But, you know, the reality is, is that California is a different nut to crack, right? Like it's not when you're the AG of California, you're like the AG of a small country. It's not the same as being the AG of Kentucky. And so, I mean, just reading those numbers, I'm like, oh, my gosh. Yeah. Like just the experience of being the AG And the U.S. Senator, when you're from a state like that, it's just a different ballgame, man. And running in an election of that size, I know in in our part of the country here in Kentucky, people go, oh, California. Why did he pick someone from California? And the pundits like to say, shouldn't he have picked somebody from Michigan or Wisconsin or whatever? Again, like the experience of running and winning statewide in California twice for two very different roles That's a big deal. That tells you that this is a person who has been quite extensively vetted. Well, in three times, if you count a re-election to the attorney general's office, I mean, she won a re-election in 2014 and then ran for the Senate seat and won more than 60 percent of the vote. Yeah, I don't. And listen, I think, isn't it time we can all complain about California? I certainly complain about California. But we haven't had a major party or vice presidential nominee from California in like a long time. Um, on the Democratic side anyway. And I think that's important. I think we need that. It's not like Joe Biden is like a a stereotypical New England elite. You know, I think he has a good connection with people who tend to roll their eyes about coastal candidates. And a lot of people live on the coast and they deserve to be represented in our country, too. So we just have to stop that silliness, I think. It just also doesn't matter. It's not like people like... I don't think it works since Lyndon Johnson that you pick somebody and they bring the state for you. Like, it just doesn't work like that anymore. So she won re-election in 2014 before running for and winning California's Senate seat. Sarah was just saying she won with more than 60 percent of the vote. When she got to Washington, D.C., she was promptly placed on the Senate Judiciary Committee. And that's how a lot of us got to know her, because she's exceptionally Mm -hmm. good at asking pointed One might use the word withering questions (laughs) of nominees for positions of people testifying before the Judiciary Committee. There's this amazing exchange. I couldn't help myself. I put the link in the show notes when she was questioning Jeff Sessions and he told her that she had to slow down. She was making him nervous. (laughs) I I couldn't help it. I had to share it. (laughs) 
I thought you were talking about the moment with Bill Barr. I really liked the moment where Bill Barr, where she was like, did you, have you, the president ever asked you to open an investigation? And he's like, uh, uh, um, uh, uh, and look, Bill Barr's not a shrinking violet. You know what I mean? Like, he's not, he's a pretty tough dude, but I just love the, uh, um, uh, and of course she does that. Yes or no, we'll do. Like, and then she becomes say yes or no. Then she becomes a human thesaurus. Suggested, inferred, <laughs> hinted. <laughs> Any of these work for you? It was really good. Lord, oh my gosh, yeah, she's such. I mean, you can see all those prosecutorial skills. And we were talking about that too with her speech yesterday, which you know you can, for better or for worse, like being able to speak in front of a jury is not that different from speaking in COVID times where you never have an audience that can react to you. So she's got lots of good practice with that too. So her electoral streak received a setback, of course, in the Democratic primary. Her campaign just had a lot of issues. Fundraising wasn't great, despite some debate performances that really went well. And you're going to hear ad nauseum about her exchange with Joe oh, Biden. We'll Lord. talk about that in a second. She just kind of struggled. And so she dropped out before Iowa because of lackluster fundraising and poll numbers. Here's my favorite fact about her campaign. At her events, she played my shot from Hamilton. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that I see the primary campaign as just it's nothing but a net positive. She got vetted. She learned some hard lessons. Clearly, she's learned some, really turned the bus around on this lackluster fundraising problem. Seriously. <laughs> Goodness gracious. So, I mean, I just think that she's smart. She learns lessons. She struggled with, like, presenting a message, presenting a narrative about herself, presenting her policy problems uh, or policy priorities. And I think those are real problems. And I'm sure that she's thought a great deal about what she did wrong and what she could do different this time. And also, it's just a different beast when you're VP, right? Even if you're a VP that's so important as she will be. So, I, I you know, I think that there's no doubt mistakes were made, that she was a front runner and that she lost momentum. And I but I also don't doubt that she learned the lessons from that. Earth Breeze Eco Sheets look just like a dryer sheet, but it's ultra concentrated, liquidless laundry detergent. It's the best of all worlds. Earth Breeze is tough on stains and odors while being kind to the planet and your skin, so it's good for sensitive skin. It reduces plastic waste. All of these things are true and amazing, but let's get to the heart of it. Y'all know I have a laundry system. You know it revolves around training children as young as possible to do their own laundry. Earthbreeze sheets feels like they were invented for this. Because littles maybe sometimes struggle with those big, heavy jugs. Or maybe you worry about the pods, but here we go. Here we go, y'all. Earth Breeze Eco Sheets. It's like the perfect solution. A child as young as two can handle these sheets. And... Even with toddlers, like, you can get them involved. And this is a way to get them helping with laundry, even before they could do it themselves. Ugh, God, I love it so much. Right now, our listeners can receive 40% off EarthBreeze just by going to earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit. That's earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit to cut out single-use plastic in your laundry room and claim 40% off your subscription. earthbreeze.com slash pantsuit. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing, you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. 
comfort, and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. They even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit. It's time to get your problem solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get $15 off your order with code PODCAST15. We do quite a bit of hosting here at the Silvers household, and I think there is nothing that completes a table for dinner. Like a beautiful loaf of bread and wild grain has made that so simple because they send gorgeous loaves of sourdough bread. Lots of spins on the ingredients, but always just this fantastic, high quality, easy to bake in 25 minutes or less from frozen bread that turns out perfectly every single time. I also have to tell you about the free croissants for life that come with your wild grain orders. And those croissants make the morning, your brunch, maybe your late night snack, flaky and like you're sitting in a French cafe and they're just perfect every single time. That's what I love about Wild Grain. It's easy, it's consistent, it's fully customizable. It is the first ever Bake From Frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries. For a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. You heard me, free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit, or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Okay, so here we are in our section where we just get to say what we think. Sarah, on a scale of zero to 10... Tell me about your enthusiasm level. I mean, it's just so weird. Actually, I think about the this sort of weird tension in my enthusiasm as a perfect reflection of Kamala Harris, because what we've talked about over and over again is that she holds these tensions, the tensions in her identity, the tensions between being in this liberal place like San Francisco and being a prosecutor, uh, the tension between being a black woman and a prosecutor, like this sort of centrist, pragmatic approach. And I feel like that's where I'm at. I'm in this tension between being like... Yes, I love her. I think she is smart and capable. I think she will make a great first female president because that's where my eyes are right now. That's my vision. He's not going to run for a second term. She's 55. She'll be the leader of the party by all accounts from her. Because what I look to a lot is those relationships, like the relationship with Cory Booker, like the chatter I hear from my friends in D.C., all that kind of thing. And so, you know, I'm stuck between this. Yeah, I'm excited and I'm enthusiastic. And this great caption my friend sent me from Ava DuVernay, where she, she says, there is no debate anymore. There's no room for it in my book. We either make this happen or literally more of us perish. People are dying. Someone I love died. The virus is real. If it hasn't visited your store stop, it will. Oh, but Kamala did this or she didn't do that. I hear you. I know. And I don't care because what she didn't do is abandon citizens in a pandemic, rip babies from their mother's arms at the border, send federal troops to terrorize protesters. And she goes on and on and on. And she's basically like, I don't care. Like, I'm in this really weird spot where I'm like, I love her. I think she's excellent. And also, let me be clear, I don't care. Like, I don't really care about any criticisms of her. I don't really care about, like, picking apart her record. Like, I just just have this sense of, like, great. 
Wonderful. Moving on. Like We have got to get to November, get her and Biden in the White House and the just administration generally. You know, everything's on fire. And she, you know, is wonderful. And any other time I would wax poetic. But like there's a little bit of me that's like. Great. And maybe what I like about her more is I feel like she has that vibe, too. This is great. We don't have time to play. I'm excited to be here. We have lots of work to do. You know what I mean? Like, that's the energy I'm in right now. I agree with that. I also just I do like her. I mean, I I really from the beginning, she is the example of women's leadership that I want my daughters to grow up with in their minds. Mm. That confidence, but mixed with joy and fun and lightheartedness. It was a big deal to me to show my kids clips of her and have them react so positively. I think she is enormously, you know, aggressive and sharp and also is a delight. Right. And that that combination where I feel like she just is is who she is all the time. And she has this conviction, even where I disagree with her, as I very much do, especially about executive power. Even where I disagree with her, I think she maintains that attitude of joy because she's living her values. She's very clear about what's important to her. And she will be flexible, yes, around the policies and the margins because she's serious about the big things, you know, and clear Mm. about those. And I think that's an example of leadership that we need in this country. But it's especially for me as the mom of two daughters, what I want them to see. And I love that because of the complexity of her identity, and I hate even saying that because everyone's identity is complex, right? But Mm -hmm. so many people who've never seen themselves represented on the chart of presidents and vice presidents can see parts of themselves represented with her. And I think that's really important. If we never have another white president or white vice president in my lifetime, I'm good. There is no unmet need there for me. Mm-hmm. And it's really exciting to me that people can, you know, people can see something here, a, a piece of themselves being embraced by the American public in this way, not just being tolerated or assimilated or um, ignored, but like saying, lead us to to these to populations of people who've never heard that from the entire country before. So the other thing I like about this pick is it kind of assures me that the Biden team is not going to do any sort of gamesmanship. Like she was mm. remarkably the safe pick. It's laughable that that's the word that the media has decided to use about her. But there was a conventional wisdom that like this was the right choice for the Biden team and they went with it. They didn't pull off any last minute sort of stunt. I think he is probably quite comfortable with her policy wise on most issues. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I, I appreciate the steadiness in this choice. I want that's what we want about Joe Biden, right? The people who overwhelmingly voted for him, I sense, want that steadiness. I think there's just a part of me, too, that's like, I think because I worked on Hillary's 2007 presidential campaign. And so, you know, for better, for worse in my life, for 13 years, I've been in this space of like longing for a woman on the ticket, longing for a woman in the White House, feeling like it's just within our grasp. And I'm like, you know, it's not that I'm, I still don't long for it, but it because we get closer and closer and it becomes just more 
normalize. We had so many women on the ticket. Now we have a woman vice presidential candidate, which we had on the Republican side not long ago. She's a hot mess, but the reality is she was still a female vice president nominee. It's like it's feeling every additional step. It's like the quote. It doesn't feel like the first. Like it doesn't it feels like we're just getting closer and closer and it's not going to be the last step either. And so I don't have that excited energy anymore. I feel like I'm in like the the suffragists in the middle of this like 20 year battle. There's this great moment in the PBS documentary, The Vote, where they get the amendment through the House of Representatives and they walk back to the headquarters. And Alice Paul says, great, we have 11 senators. Let's start making notes like there was not even a moment of celebration because it was just here's what's still in front of us. And I think that's where I'm at. I think I'm just I don't feel celebratory. One, because I've just had my heart broken too many times. And it feels like instead of feeling like it's going to be a one off and we're going to be done, I think the reality of the last few years have just hit home that like, no, this is a slog. This is a long battle for female representation in the highest office in our country. And just being clear eyed about that and feeling happiness and satisfaction every step we get closer. But just keeping my heart in check that we're still pretty far away in a lot of ways. You know, I'm just, I'm always living in that, that balance. And I feel that with her candidacy as well, even though I really do believe to my core that she will most likely be the first female president. I think a warm up to the vice presidency is just what America needed. Let them get used to her. (laughs) And then once she, everybody's very comfortable And she'll be the party leader, and hopefully that's where things will go. But, you know, I'm just very, like Kamala herself, I'm trying to be clear-eyed and pragmatic about what still lies ahead. Oh, I feel this terrible tension right now of being um, Sarah's friend versus being Beth on this podcast. (laughs) Um, Because there's a big part of me that cannot imagine the Democratic Party as it currently exists being like, yeah. Kamala Harris is going to be the next presidential nominee. Let's do it. I am fearful for so many reasons. And and there are people in our audience who would say, no, we want this. Like, we, we I, I think there will be another very contentious primary because I just, again, to the point that we've made a hundred times here, the Democratic Party is holding too much. It's really hard for me to see that vision of everybody rallying around her, assuming Joe Biden wins, assuming the term is successful, assuming he doesn't run again, like, All those assumptions that have to fall into place, I still think there would be a contentious primary, but I would be excited uh, to see her in that position. If it unfolds the way you just described, that would be fine with me. I think sitting here today, who knows what the world will be like in four years. My favorite thing about this pick all the way around, and, and you mentioned this before we started, is something that we really need to emphasize is that she and Biden had such a testy exchange during the debate and that she was so deeply critical of him. So if you don't remember 25 years ago when approximately 90 people were running for the Democratic nomination and we had a debate every day, she attacked Joe Biden during the debate. And I think attack is a fair word. I think she might describe it that way over his stance on busing. And it it was very personal. I mean, she said it was hurtful to hear some of the remarks you've made about people in the United States Senate who were 
clearly supporting white supremacist policies. It, it was hard. And uh, Jill Biden has described it as a gut punch. Mm. He has talked about how difficult it was for him. I think it was difficult for her to do. And to me, imagining that we might have a president and vice president who can say hard things to each other, even when they hurt, who can be that critical of one another and who can still kind of pick up and work together. That's what I want in our leadership. So I see that as an A plus for both of them, that, that here's where they are after that exchange. To state the completely obvious, to live with a president who is so absorbed in his own ego, who won't even share the mic, much less hand it over to someone who has attacked him in the past, you know, cannot be overstated. It's just the the laying down of ego. Like you said, that it's like it was a safe choice and they made it and they kept it. There were no leaks, which I think is... (laughs) Not to be (laughs) underemphasized, that it's like both energizing, but a very careful and thoughtful pick. Like just all those things. I cannot really state enough how hungry I am for that sort of stable leadership and decision making. I mean, I think we all are, especially in the middle of COVID, just watching this play out and happen and it's not filled with crazy tweets or hateful rhetoric or truly bananas word salad press conferences like it just this is what like it played out like you'd expect it to they did the vetting he made a hard choice he put his ego aside they clearly have a great relationship there's warmth she got to speak like it's just all of it like it wasn't a sideshow isn't that nice Isn't it so nice just to witness something that's not a complete sideshow? Yeah, Chad said last night there were there was commentary about will she electrify blah, blah, blah. And Chad was like, I don't want to be electrified. I don't. I just want competent Mm -hmm. people to go do their thing. Can we take a slight detour on that point, Sarah? Do you mind? Some of y'all are not real pleased with me because during our How to Be a Citizen series, I said that I have been telling people, yes, I think you have to vote for Joe Biden. And I would like to clarify those remarks in the context of talking about a ticket that you perhaps are not electrified by. (laughs) Thing number one, I am a random person on the Internet to most of you. And so, of course, you don't have to do anything that you don't want to. Your vote is yours. And the people in my life who ask me that question, their vote is theirs. If you are asking for my honest opinion, what I will tell you is that I think the best decision for all Americans is to vote for Joe Biden in this election, not because I think Joe Biden is perfect, not because Joe Biden represents my vision of government perfectly, not because I have negative things to say about Joe Jorgensen, who seems like a lovely person and I do have some alignment with, but because I believe That if this election is not decisive, if this election is not in the category of landslide, I believe it will be litigated for a long time. I believe it will be messy and ugly. I believe it will take a country that is already incredibly fragile and fractured over the brink to a point from which we cannot return. And listen, friends, I am not a dramatic person. I believe the stakes are too high to make a principled vote for someone else this time. 
If you want to do that, that's your business. It's your vote. And you are an American and your opinion is just as valid as mine. Again, I recognize I'm a random person on the Internet. But what we do here is offer our opinions. And that's how I feel about this. And as I look at the Biden-Harris combination, is there something exciting there for absolutely every person in this country ideologically? Of course not. There never is, though. And when I look at the field and our options and the reality of how I believe this president would handle a close election, to me, the choice is obvious. I mean, I don't think I really need to go on record (laughs) is how I feel about third party candidates in this election. Yeah. I mean, the stakes are too high. It's like Ava DuVernay said, like, I don't want to hear it. Lives are on the line. We have to get out of this hellscape. Let me and say this stinks. much more dramatically and less pragmatically than Beth did. I want that's what I told my husband last night. I want out of this hellscape. That's what I want. And I, you know, want to give grace and be nuanced, but like, come on. Sometimes that's not what the times call for. And this is one of those times. And I'm sorry about that. Like it stinks. I hate that. I wish that were not so. I would love to make another you know, what feels to me a principled vote for someone who really reflects my values. I would love to support the third party option and other parties coming up. I would love to think about the process here and how it favors these two big parties and how that hasn't served any of us. I agree with all of that. I would love to spend lots of time diving into who is Joe Jorgensen? How exciting that a woman is representing the Libertarian Party. That's remarkable. That's really cool. I cannot in good conscience this time go there. I'm not judging you if that's where you are. As for me and my life and the microphone sitting in front of me, I cannot be there this time. So Biden-Harris 2020, there we go. So as we prepare for Tuesday's celebration, we would like to hear from some more listeners. This is the Litzenberger family about what suffrage means to them. My name is Hannah. I'm 33 years old and live in Seattle, Washington. And this is my dad. And my name is Harold, also known as Papa Litz. I'm 63 years old, and I live in Cary, North Carolina. So Hannah, what does suffrage mean to you? So I've been thinking about this question in preparation for having this conversation. And then I read John Lewis's op-ed, and his words said it way better than I ever could. So this is his quote. The vote is the most powerful nonviolent change agent you can have in a democratic society. You must use it because it is not guaranteed you can lose it. Oh, I love John Lewis's words. But I can honestly say, with my privilege as an old white man, I haven't ever had to think about my right to vote. I've always had that right. It hurts my heart when I realize that, but it's true. I'm starting to understand that more deeply now. I'm so glad you said that, Dad. And it's so important to think and talk about our privilege as white people when we think about voting. And um, so let me ask you, what does suffrage mean to you? Uh, Well, suffrage for me starts in Seneca Falls, New York, which is where my mom, your grandma, grew up. It's where the, the Seneca Falls Convention was held back in 1848. So we've got roots where the women's suffrage movement started. I think mom was influenced by the understanding that a woman had to take charge of her own life. She was the only one of her 11 brothers and sisters that went to college. There's no question that the women's suffrage movement influenced mom, and that in turn influenced me. She taught me how to treat women with respect and dignity and to look to women for leadership and mentoring. Most importantly, I learned to feel good about following and serving women. 
I did not have to be the man of the house. It's really powerful to hear you say that. And it's, you know, things I've known, but it's just really powerful to hear, hear you say the words. Another really present value in our family is service and giving back. So I think about casting my vote carefully and thoughtfully as an act of service, like staying engaged, doing the research, talking to friends and family in a small way. It helps me honor the fact that more than 100 years ago, I wouldn't have been able to vote. And I want to honor all the women who've come before me, my mom, uh, my aunts, grandmas, great grandmas, so many who maybe could vote, but didn't have nearly the same opportunities as me. And you know this about me, I'm always trying to think forward and I want to figure out how we can get more people voting through better access to voting, allowing more people to vote. Anyway, <laughs> I'm glad we can talk about this and honor some family history in the process. Yeah, interestingly, we are talking to each other about women's suffrage because I stumbled onto pantsuit politics a few years back. I'm thinking I was drawn to this podcast because of the strong women in my life that grew up in Seneca Falls, New York. Amen. Love you, Dad. Love you too, girl. Take care. We are going to celebrate, observe, reflect upon the centennial of the passage of the 19th Amendment on Tuesday. We have several guests coming on to share reflections and insight on that centennial. You will not want to miss it. And we hope that you have the best weekend that's available to you. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Pantsuit Politics. We'll be back in your ears on Tuesday with the suffrage centennial. And until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Pantsuit Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. Elise Knapp is our managing director. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener-supported. Special thanks to our executive producers, Tim Miller, Tiffany Hasler, Joshua Allen, David McWilliams, Allie Edwards, Martha Brunitsky, Amy Whited, Janice Elliott, Sarah Ralph, Barry Kaufman, Jeremy Sequoia, Lori Lodow, Emily Neasley, Allison Luzader, Tracy Putoff, Jared Minson. To support Pantsuit Politics and receive lots of bonus features, visit patreon.com slash pantsuitpolitics. You can connect with us on our website, pantsuitpoliticsshow.com, sign up for our weekly emails, and follow us on Instagram.